I would like to briefly introduce the participants. Alphabetically, Chris Impey, he is the Stanley Kelly Visiting Professor for Distinguished Teaching at the Department of Astrophysical Sciences at Princeton. His home is Arizona, where he is a university distinguished professor at University of Arizona and deputy head of the Department of Astronomy in charge of all academic programs. He has obviously huge number of publications and honors. Just for our purpose today, I will say that he's written three uh, popular books, The Living Cosmos, which was published in 2007, How It Ends, Talking About Life, and one of the reasons why he's here, his new book is called How It Began. Professor Joseph Cohn, who's sitting to his right, is Professor Emeritus of Mathematics at, University, at Princeton University. He's also winner of numerous prizes, including the Society Still Prize and the Bergman Prize, and is a member of the New York National Academy, United States National Academy of Sciences. He has written numerous articles and spoken in many places. Professor Tim Maudlin is sitting here. He's, uh, primarily his interest focuses on the foundation of physics, metaphysics, and logic. His books include quantum non-locality. He's a professor at uh, NYU. His books include quantum non-locality and relativity, truth and paradox, and the metaphysics within physics, and also philosophy of physics, space, and time which is due in publication in 2012. It's not yet published, the last one. Any moment. Okay. He has been a Guggenheim Fellow, a visiting professor at Harvard, and prior to going to NYU, he was at Rutgers. Mark Norell has been with us a number of times. He probably knows about people and geography more than anyone else, certainly in this room, if not in the world. He's constantly traveling. He's the chair of paleontology at the Museum of Natural History. And uh, he has also written many scholarly art articles and books. And his recent book is called Traveling the Silk Road, Ancient Pathway to the Modern World. So with that, we will begin. question that was my directions for this uh, seminar, for this round table was, uh, I noticed that the question that was asked in the, in the link on the internet was, why are we curious about beginnings? Is that, maybe this doesn't work, huh? Yeah. Are we live? Does this thing work? Let's see, let me put it. Okay. <laughs> now, does this work or not? Can you hear me? Okay, maybe I should. Anyway, ah, here I can hear myself now. Okay, so um, uh, the question was, why are we curious about beginnings? And um, uh, I think that um, uh, we're curious about beginnings because that's how we can organize our our thoughts, our beings. And I want to uh, quote uh, here. Uh, 
Borges, who is uh, Jose Luis Borges, who is one of my favorite authors, who writes, um, uh, wrote a short story called Aleph, which is the Hebrew for Alpha. And um, he says, um, as a boy, I used to marvel, marvel that the letters in a closed book did not get scrambled and, um, uh, and lost overnight. So, so somehow you have to make order out of this world. And uh, the way to make order out of the world is to start somewhere and you start at a point and you start counting. So that's the first reason why we're curious about, uh, about beginnings. Now, I also want to point out that the moment one thinks about uh, beginnings, one can't help but think about endings. First of all, it's coming in two weeks. <laughs> coming in two weeks, but I, I think they're sort of inseparable. Let me start uh, maybe with with the biblical uh, kind of thing. Um, so, um, Aleph is the word for alpha, uh, is the, is the, uh, for alpha in Hebrew, and uh, and, and the, it turns out that um, the uh, uh, writing of the Bible starts. Instead of starting with the letter Aleph, starts with the letter Bet, which is the same as Beta in Greek, or similar. And uh, but in Hebrew, it's written uh, like a kind of a thing that's open on one end, like like this, more or less. And so, um, there are, uh, anyway, there are two explanations for why should why doesn't it start with Aleph, which is the first letter. Uh, so one explanation is sort of mystical. And I say, well, uh, Aleph being the first letter is sort of humble and doesn't want to go first. So uh, that's one exp explanation. But the other one, which is by the um, commentator uh, Rashi, which is uh, short for uh, Rabbi Shlomo Itzaki, it's a uh, Rashi. Uh, uh, and he, uh, his explanation is that uh, that uh, this letter bet uh, has an open end because, uh, and the other things are closed because the open uh, end encourages to ask questions. And you ask questions about everything, but you're, about the closed part means that you're not allowed to ask about what comes before. So, uh, so it sort of implies that when there is, when you say something begins, uh, you sort of, it sort of implies that there was something before, uh, in some ways. So anyway, that's a theological thing. Uh, so that is one connection with opening and ending. But another connection is this: that in mathematics, um, the letter Aleph actually stands for a kind of infinity. In fact, infinities, according to the mathematician Cantor, were classified Aleph sub zero, Aleph sub one, and so on. And it turns out after you take all the numbers, it's an infinite collection, then you can sort of adjoin still another number, which is called Aleph sub zero. And then you can continue developing at one and keep going. And then you reach still another number. Aleph sub one and so on. 
So you have, um, uh, so you have the, uh, so Aleph, the first thing really refers to the end of the ordinary things and beginning of the new things. And similarly in uh, ordinary academic language, you, you go to a commencement exercise when we're really ending one period and starting another period. So, so um, there is, uh, I think that's, there, there's the deep property. Um, uh, let's see, perhaps some other remarks. Uh, maybe I should stop I, I for a while. I can make a counterpoint. Yes, please. Counterpoint to the, the desire to organize our affairs and have a story that we can tell with a beginning and an end. I think there's a tension because in historical terms, preceding, you know, long before there was a scientific story of our origins as humans and the origin of the earth or the origin of the universe, and long before there was a Judeo-Christian tradition with the Genesis, the major cultures of the world, in non, not in communication with each other, uh, had endless time, cycles of time, the myth of the eternal return, and that's a tradition that goes back to prehistory as long as we have records. So, you know, uh, simultaneously in amongst the Aborigines with dream time, amongst the uh, early Asiatic cultures, wherever we can understand their culture, they did not have origins. They had cycles of time, cycles embedded within cycles. We've been made familiar with the Mayans and their predictions recently, but that's a pretty universal trait of humans. And to me, that speaks to the fact that there's a, a predilection to avoid the notion of beginnings or endings, because as we've already seen, it's a, it's a bogus... Uh, uh, reassurance to say that you have a story that begins and ends because immediately you have a boundary and you, then you have to ask as Greek philosophers asked you know well if there's an edge to the universe what's beyond the edge and if there's a beginning of time what started it or what was before that so you've not really finessed anything of the infinities by declaring that you have a beginning and an end and I think the ancient cultures just went with that and posited themselves in essentially an infinite stream of events without maybe always thinking about it too deeply, but they came up with that independently of each other around the world, which is just meaningful to me. Well, I mean, I think there's something interesting just about the cycles of time also because that, uh, I mean, some of the set... Okay, sorry. Better? I think there's something interesting about this idea of cycles of time, too, because it's just, it's how much time that exists because... Uh, <clears throat> Many of the uh, Central Asians that I work with and have been around, as well as like a lot of the what I hear from uh, the uh, ethnologists that, that I work with at the museum, that you know they talk about this idea of, of what time means, and that uh, I mean I think that you know us we sit here with our you know our iPhones, our calendars, and everything. We can say, well, okay, tomorrow, two days from now, I'm going to do this. Uh, last week at this time, I was doing this. And whereas that, uh, you know, so many of the nomads, things that they'll talk about things, and they'll say, well, then you'll try to figure out when did that happen. And it turned out it happened like 125 years ago, but they're talking about it was like the other day. <laughs> and so, like, I mean, the, the whole notion of how long these cycles are is very, very, very culturally defined and very, very different. And that's an interesting phenomenon in itself because it makes you proximate in a community both in space right. and time. You can have your neighbor who you shared a, f a meal with the day before and then you can have this, this thought of something that actually happened three generations before you right. were born. But you it's, as even it's as proximate <laughs> yeah, in exactly. your culture exactly. as your neighbor. Exactly. Well, I guess if 
it's my turn. <laughs> <laughs> it's your turn I, now, but I, then we're not going to It's my turn. Yeah, it's my turn. I mean, let, let me just, if, the, if we start with the question, why do we care? Right? What, what, psychologically, why do we care about beginnings? I mean, I guess we ought to get clear. It's sometimes because, and to take an, another part of a larger version of the Bible, um, also, an arcane ain logos, right, in the beginning was the logos, was the word. Because in a story like that, what happens at the beginning organizes in a certain way, rationalizes, explains everything that comes after. Um, but I want to distinguish that, because we also have an astrophysicist here, from simply being curious about how things began. Because I take it the story we have now is more or less that the, the way things began, if they did begin physically, um, doesn't give us that, right? It's, a, it's an interesting story, it's a fascinating story, but it's not one that particularly is going to make sense out of everything that comes after. So, you know, if you want to start by thinking why we're interested in, 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 in beginnings, I think it's worthwhile seeing that it's true in narrative, often the beginning plays a very central role. But if we're expecting that of the universe, we may be sorely disappointed. <laughs> exactly. I mean, maybe we should just poll the audience that does the knowledge that you are sitting on a planet in this room having a conversation as part of a 13.7 billion year story that led to the development of 100 billion galaxies and probably 10 to the 22 habitable planets where analogs of this may or may not be occurring <laughs> in a vast universe that's 45 billion light years across. Does that reassure you that there's a... <laughs> or not? I mean, that's as good as we've come up with. And, it, you know, it's, it makes cosmologists, you know, they pat themselves mildly on the back, but not very much because the, most of the universe is still enigmatic. But that's, that's our backstory. It's a pretty amazing backstory. I'm not sure if it satisfies the psychological requirement. Yeah, I think, though, even within the context of like life on this planet, that we can look at it within this, the, the same sort of thing. I mean, it's just that there's several historical events that have happened that, uh, you know, at one point, that the Earth was pretty close to, to being completely, like, turning into an ice ball like very close to turning into an ice ball. Uh, where, you know, everything, like, and this is not in the distant, distant past. I mean, distant past paleontologically. It's maybe about 300 million years ago, but certainly multicellular life, certainly that there was organisms around and everything else. And, then, and that would have been a very dramatic thing. I mean, it would have, like, basically stopped all the, develop, the evolutionary development of organisms to that point, and it would have been, like, you know, start over time. And that, uh, you know, that... that it, life on Earth has had its ups and downs in the same way, and each one of those you could look at as a beginning, where that there's been massive extinction, and then there's been rebound after that. So that, I mean, that, uh, you know, that the whole you know, question of beginnings is basically, I think, that what you could pose to people, astronomers and cosmologists, you know, beginnings of what? So, I mean, one question I would want to ask the animals that I believe to be most highly sentient, um, is is do they have a do they have a question of about beginnings there's you know it's it's controversial all the evidence of this nature that elephants mourn their dead and are aware of non-existent you know there's a small set of higher mammals where there's apparently either a, some version of a perception of self or some awareness 
of the possibility of non-existence. But that's not, it's not proven at all. But if I were wanting to interrogate a, an orca or an elephant or one of those animals, that, that's pretty much what I, they, if they have a transmitted culture, which is of course that very high bar that we might ask of an animal to declare them somewhere in a you know, plateau around about our mountaintop of intelligence, that's one that's going forward. And then I'd want to know what they think about origins. So it's a, you know, it does mark us out. And then you wonder, in the history of the planet, you know, no one's ever got to the stage we've got to ask such questions, to talk about stories in this way. Has it happened elsewhere in the universe? I mean, yeah, it's, since nobody's going to take my money, for sure, I'll place a heavy bet that, yeah, it's happened somewhere else. <laughs> Um, I think now is my opportunity to tell the, the joke that I was mentioning to you. <laughs> uh, so uh, one of the um, questions that comes up with uh, important for beginnings is the, in the debates of, over, um, over morality of abortion and contraception and whatever. So uh, uh, there is... Um, uh, joke which probably most of you know, but apparently some don't. I don't. Uh, uh, is that uh, you have a, a rabbi, a um, Catholic priest, and a Protestant minister are discussing the question of when does life begin? And uh, the Catholic priest says, well, uh, we believe that uh, life, uh, life begins at the moment of conception. And um, Protestant uh, minister thinks about this and says, well, you know, we have a somewhat different view of things. We believe that life begins when the fetus is, becomes is liable. liable. And um, the rabbi says, well, I, I don't know. From my experience, we think, uh, I think that uh, life begins when the children leave and the dog dies. <laughs> so there could be these different, these different things about beginnings. And how about like, you know, cultures, several cultures that don't think that there is a beginning. They just think that this is the way it's always been. So, uh, you know, I've been wondering about this, not so much in terms of beginning, but in terms of uh, everything that was being discovered in your field. And I've often wondered, why are we interested in it? And so the issue of being interested in the beginning is related to our interest in learning more about something. And I'm not so sure why, what makes I'm not saying why in terms of its validity, why in terms of our psychology as humans, at least not all humans, but some humans, so interested in it and well, fascinated I, I by think, it. I think, I mean, I would last like to hear your opinion on this. I mean, the idea of the, the sort of Victorian aspect of progress and the fact that I can talk about a cosmic version of this, but the fact that we haven't always been here on this planet and that we evolved and that we were sculpted by the environment and natural selection and we have certain capabilities that we're overly impressed with, obviously, but 
you know, their legitimate capabilities. And I think that's reasonable to want to know that. The cosmic spin on it would, might be that the universe contains carbon, and without carbon, uh, organisms like us would be impossible. And it's actually hard to even contemplate uh, theoretically how to do you know, as well without building blocks like that. And so our stories are bound up with a history of star formation in the universe producing the heavy elements upon which carbon chemistry depends. And that's another Victorian notion of the universe getting better and better and more and more and more and more prone to have life in it. Because when the Big Bang happened, you had hydrogen, helium, little smattering of lithium and deuterium, and that's it. And you know, the cosmic, the great designer sitting there with hydrogen and helium and trying to stick them together can make exactly nothing. One hydrogen molecule and then you're done. So the universe in a strain, you know, maybe that's another anthropic thing. We shouldn't be surprised to live in an old and vast universe, given that it's expanding. It had to be old for there to have been enough generations of stars forming and dying and ejecting their heavy elements to deposit enough of them on a rocky cinder around a middleweight star to lead to us. But that's a, a terrible post hoc story, so but it leads to the question, you know, why did it go that way or how did it go? Could we have been, could you posit us, and uh, in, in technically you could posit us within half a billion years of the Big Bang. There, are part, there were parts of the universe within which there had been enough heavy elements produced and almost certainly planets. We found exoplanets that are 12.7 billion years old, so we know planets existed pretty early on. So you could posit analogs of us very far back in cosmic time. But why do we care? Why, why do we care? Maybe in the, for astronomy and cosmology, it's probably bound a little bit in our uniqueness and whether the things that happened, this crazy careening history of life on this one planet, is that a unique story or is that one of a, a large number of stories that could be wildly different or maybe even similar? Either, either of which is very interesting, of course. So, But I, I mean, the question, why do we care? might, you have to ask yourself to begin with, um, what kind of understanding are we, are we aiming at? Right? And a lot of the time, you understand something by understanding at least immediately how it came about. So you're, you're understanding what's going on now in terms of the situation a little bit earlier, right? Now, if you, if you then um, are like, obsessive about this the way philosophers are, you then I say, okay, fine, but now what about the earlier thing, right? Um, I now need to understand that. Um, well, you, in a practical sense, can't go on forever backward. So it's nice to find a place where you feel like, okay, I'm satisfied stopping there. Of course, interesting, that, that you might call a kind of narrative beginning. It's actually a stopping because what you're doing is thinking backward in time and finding a place where I'm happy with that. And, I, and, and once I see how where we are arose from that, I have a sense of, of comprehension. Um, that would suggest that we don't start out interested in beginnings. We end up interested in beginnings because we, we're trying to stop ourselves in a continual, iterated set of questioning. There's a kind of a forward version of that story, which is illustrated in Kafka, I think, a lot, where uh, there's always in Kafka's uh, Stories. There's always this idea that just reaching for something and, and you can't get blocked and keep going forward. It's trying to look for the beginning. Uh, I think there's a short uh, essay uh, 
by him about about trying to find out what the law is. And the man, and also in the castle, there's a similar kind of thing, that a man comes to uh, to this place where the law is being kept, and he wants to get into it. And there's a guard, and he won't let him in. And he said, well, "Let me in. I have to go." He says, "Look, if I let you in, you'll go in there, but there'll be a guard who's even more powerful than I am, and we won't let you into the next room. And if you do happen to get to the next room, there'll still be another guard." And so it's, it's a kind of a, it's going, it's the same argument you have, but going in the other direction. Um, which uh, I, I think, and I think there's something deep about, um, about people wanting to um, um, get away from the present somehow, either going to the future or to the past. Uh, and, and the things are sort of, uh, and they want to, in order to uh, find out what, find their bearings in this world, you know? You feel, where do you come from, or where are you going to, or what, 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 the, what the law is, or what the thing is. So you're always knocking against these beginnings. Because, because we are anxious about it then? Because, because I think we're, I think that, that that's the way human beings are organized that way, because it's probably can be explained in evolutionary terms, because, uh, uh, we can do better if we try to uh, visualize what's going to happen next and, and, and try to organize ourselves uh, and, and understand our environment better. I think we, it's, it helps, helps the survival and the uh, going forward of, than, than otherwise. So probably, uh, we are wired, probably we are wired to ask this kind of, this kind of existential question. I think that one of the things that makes us, you know, fundamentally human is that we're naturally curious. No. I mean, that's like led to our, you know, our ascent and may lead to our demise. But at the same time, I mean, that we are by nature very curious. And, you know, people, as someone who works on dinosaurs, people always ask me, well, why do people care about dinosaurs? Why are people so interested in dinosaurs? And, you know, that on one level I say, I don't know, but <laughs> I, I really don't know. But on the other level that... I think that it's just a way in which that uh, you know people can, you know, visualize something that they can't see today that exists from the the ancient past, and they're able to just work their minds out uh, on it, and you know, and think about these things, and uh, and think about them in very very thoughtful kinds of ways, and that uh, you know we are curious. I think about the past. We're curious about the future. Uh, that you know, any, everywhere you go in the world, that you know, people are you know wanting more understanding of that, whether it's like from astronomy or whether it's from you know paleontology whether it's from archaeology and that uh, you know you can talk to you know cab drivers in Cambodia and stuff and that they'll ask you questions about the past and you know what it tells us and things like that I mean I think that it's it's just it's a characteristic of us in general I, th I think uh, one indication of that is that uh, in the uh, this, uh, I think there's a kind of a general in politics here, especially these last days, there's kind of a general anti-intellectual attitude. Nevertheless, so that people say, well, why should we spend our hard-earned money with these academics who do useless stuff? Nevertheless, uh, there's no opposition to research in astronomy. And there have been astronomers, uh, 
I must say, a, a great admiration for them, not only for the scientific accomplishments, but also for their accomplishments in getting these extremely expensive things funded. And <laughs> no one... That's it. Until we learn how to make black holes, and then they're going to start locking us up. Right. But no one, no one objects. I mean, you can be the most uh, right-wing, anti-government uh, person, and nevertheless, astronomy, how can we deny the, those guys' funds? Because, you know, the stars, I mean... So, uh, whereas the philosophers, they're they're really subversive. You have to, you have to really watch out. <laughs> they, they won't get. They don't get any uh, money. Also, they, they don't need. They don't need which is fa- the perfect base from which to be subversive. <laughs> they don't need those fancy telescopes, though. I don't think. Well, maybe they do nowadays. I don't know. But I, w- I mean, I wish it were true. I wish I could tell myself it were true that people are interested in dinosaurs just out of curiosity. But, you know go to a guy who's working on paleobotany and who's working out the structure of long-gone ferns. And I get, best, you'll get a lot more people saying, what the heck is that worth? Because dinosaurs are big and scary and exciting, right? Um, well, I don't know. I, and, I disagree and, with that. I mean, I think like, you could really say that, like, uh, that uh, you know, if, if you boil it all down to like, the, you know, we are scientists and stuff, that if we sit around, we do science. And there's two kinds of science that you can do. You can do science, the same science on charismatic organisms as non-charismatic organisms. If you work on charismatic organisms, it's a lot more fun. First, because there's more money in it as far as for your research. Second, we can talk to groups of people who are actually interested in what we do. Right. <laughs> and, well, and also, and come to it with a lot more background knowledge. And charismatic <laughs> is relative. I mean, Neil yeah. Wilson make and sexy. No yeah, question. Exactly. So, exactly. Know. Exactly. I think another part of the answer, back to the curiosity question, is um, it's meaning. We're looking for meaning. And a little, little worm-like aspect of meaning in our brains is not wanting to think that it's too accidental. You know, we, it, it, mm-hmm. it has to make sense. You know, like I don't. Okay, if I just woke up and I was a dog, my, I'd have probably three thoughts. I think, oh shit, I'm a dog, and then I, and then I think. Oh, I'm going to die. And then I get to, why am I a dog? You know, and why not something else? So, and as a person, you know, my mom and my dad might have just, you know, through some glancing encounter with a third party, got drunk that evening, and here I am. Or my dad might have been eyeing the girl behind my mom in line, and it was misread, or whatever, and here I am. You know, now is that, does that accidental part of my story diminish me? Well, no, because I'll, I'll <laughs> rationalize it any way I like. But we want to tell the same story about humans and, and the story of how we came to be, that it not be an entirely serendipitous roll of the dice, that the contingencies not be so overwhelming that there's... And, and yet we also know the logical other point of the spectrum, teleology and, and things that, you know, if you're not buying into a standard religious narrative, you're not wanting to posit yourself that way either. So it's, there's a, that's a tension there between the accidental and the inevitable. The, let, let me just, I mean, it occurred to me one thing to mention on this topic, which is the opposite side of the coin you just gave about finding out that your origin was more or less accidental, right? Um, is, is, of course, a, a, you often hear, and this goes back to the narrative idea, people want to know where they came from to somehow find out the meaning, invest their lives with meaning, right? Um, Am I here for a purpose? Was there some purpose? Um, 
And I guess it's worthwhile pointing out, as far as I can tell, even if there was, that doesn't help. That doesn't help at all for most problems. I mean, if you went to your parents and you said, why am I here? And instead of this story about the accidental meeting, they said, well, you know, we decided we wanted a chess playing progeny, right? And we very specifically um, had you in order to train you as a chess player. And from your childhood, they, you know, drilled chess into you. And if you get to you know, your middle age and you say, you know, I just don't find chess interesting. You know, my, I don't find a life as a chess player fulfilling or, or important or satisfying. Um, finding out that nonetheless that was your purpose, right? That was the purpose in your creation. I think that doesn't help you at all, right? And say, well, sorry, mom and dad, you know. Right. Um, I'm going to disappoint you, but the fact that I'm here, you put me here for that purpose just doesn't help me, right? So I think Sometimes we, again, have way too high expectations for what we even in principle could get out of an origin story. Um, there are certain kinds of desire for significance that no origin story of any sort could really satisfy. Okay, and you've got to live with that, but then you start looking your, for your significance elsewhere, which I think mm. is probably the best thing to do. Well, yeah, but... Um there is a kind of a sort of practical idea of putting things in some sort of order, right? Like for example, uh, if you are ap applying for a patent, right? It's nice to figure out whether you were the first one to make this thing <laughs> or, or something. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's right, there's an economic. And also, well, I, I should say um, that um, it's also very, uh, to change things a little bit, there's also a very use, useful thing of um, of not having beginnings. Like, um, for example, when people started counting, you know, everything was one, two, three, and so on. And it became, within itself, it became evident that when people started going backwards, it, it was very uh, useful to put in also zero, minus one, minus two, and so on. So that, um, so, so that, as I said, uh, there is a natural uh, um, thing that when you look for a beginning, you are also looking for for the end of what happened before in some ways. And uh, but this predicting, predictability feeling of wanting things to be predictable have something to do with it? Probably, probably people feel that if they understand the past, they will learn from it or something like that. Uh, it seems to be empirically not uh, verified, right? People <laughs> tend to make the same mistake over and over again. Well, within the, well, at least within the context of biological evolution, though, I mean, it's just that it's very, very hard to predict anything from it because it's so influenced by singular historical events. I mean, you, like, you never know when a giant meteorite's going to hit the planet and wipe everything out. Or you never know when just basic geological processes are going to happen. You never know like a lot of these things. So it's like looking at the, the history of Western Europe. I mean, things happen and they don't happen. And if you reran the tape, it would be completely different. Completely different. I mean, so it's not as predictable as you know, astronomy or something like this, where that uh, you are looking at a, an event, but you also have a lot of large numbers and you have some <coughs> more basic sort of mathematics that come to play on things. So that I'm sure that maybe 
500 years from now, when we get down to the nitty-gritty in astronomy, it's going to be just as dirty as it is of looking at biological evolution and stuff, because it, uh, when you're looking at specific cases and in the, in the evolution of you know, singular systems, that it'll be just as hard. In a sense, the, the fact that it is unpredictable, I agree, that, that should be liberating because you, you have a story and, and whether you like it or not that we all you know evolve from you know slime mold that might be on your shower curtain or some relative of that you know <laughs> and we made something of ourselves but you know really it sort of starts now I mean knowing the story doesn't tell you how to go forward the, f the future exactly. is that unpredictable that you wouldn't even try I mean you know you, do you know how many teraflops of computer power is applied to weather forecasting and the guy who's just told to say same as yesterday beats the computer, beats the $100 million Or different stations tell you something right. totally different. So, you know, so don't feel very comfortable about the power of technology applied to things that are chaotic or intrinsically unpredictable and the evolution of life is going to be like that. And then, and then so then there you are. You're, we're here and we, got a we have a story. It's interesting. We can spin it whichever way we like, you know. But the truth is it all really starts now. We're, we're all having our, oh shit, I'm a dog moment, which is, oh shit, I'm an early 21st century human on a planet that's in some peril with a sort of technologically sophisticated but fundamentally tribal world culture that's not quite getting its shit together and how's that going to work you know and do I have a part in it and can I help the whole picture as well as my little piece and that would be true whether the story started in a different way than it actually did yeah, it yeah, almost yeah. doesn't matter yeah. so, so beginnings don't matter <laughs> well, do, you think, do you think there'll be sunrise tomorrow um, I'm persuaded Bertrand Russell told the story about that, so I'm, I'm, I always follow Bertrand when I can. His, his story, incidentally, just a simple one, um, the, the chicken, the slightly smarter than an average chicken, anyone who's been on a farm knows how smart chickens are not. Um, the chicken that has experienced the sun rising and the farmer coming out to scatter feed and so inductively concludes that um, this rising ball, this, this light in the sky, leads to the food for the day. And then one morning, the sun rises, and the farmer comes out and strangles the chicken for the dinner table. The dr drastic failure of inductive reasoning. But then it's just a, it's just a chicken, so you know it's okay. No, but, uh, so I believe so, in it slightly more than the chicken does, or for a different reasons. Yeah, reason. but the chicken was. Uh, Right in believing the sun would rise, right? That's true, yes. Uh, we all have our stories, it's uh, fine. But so that there is, maybe there is some kind of uh, um, value to knowing what happened before to, to predict what, what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. But that's only a probabilistic argument. <laughs> right. Right. Every, everything is a probabilistic argument, of course. But the kind of uh, curiosity that you are you are using to explain why we are looking to find out more about beginnings, origins, and so on, and cosmology—you don't find that amongst all the people that you meet. I mean, in in your travels. I think that probably. I mean, I think it's pretty much of culturally, it's a universal. I mean, people are interested in. 
that they're, they're either interested in or they have a story of where they came from. And so that's a, a form of a beginning. And uh, most of them have some apocalyptic story about what's going to happen to them in the end or what will happen in the end. I mean, it's just, I mean, uh, you know, as we were talking about earlier, and stuff, that seems to be sort of a universal sort of thing amongst culture around the world. So, so, so here's a straightforward anthropological question. I mean, you said before there are lots of cultures that yeah. had a sense that there wasn't a beginning, that time was... Well, they've always been there. Time but, is, but is there a culture that doesn't have an origin myth? An origin myth. Some kind of origin myth that's passed down. It may not sort of cohere with the idea that things have been around Yeah, not forever, that I'm familiar with. But, but you would think, I mean, it, it seems like one yeah. hears everybody has some narrative, right? Every culture right. develops some narrative that you call an origin myth. Right. And it's also, I think, not this is not my field, but what I've read about it is it's interesting that many of those cultures, the Judeo-Christian narrative, you know, with has its obvious moral uh, underpinning and overlay, but that's also true in these cyclic stories of time. There's a redemption, rebirth, there's apocalypse, and so, you know, these are very common themes even when time can be considered cyclic and maybe not explicitly eternal, because it's not always conceptualized that way, but operationally it might as well be eternal. But it still has a, a moral uh, overlay and a cycle which means something to the person who's posited within that cycle, within a cycle, within a larger cycle that becomes essentially infinite as far as I can tell. So it doesn't, the timeline, you know, could be as close to infinite as makes no difference. And it seems that there's a universal yearning to have a tether in it and to have a an operational, uh, sort of an action-oriented or moral tether in it, you know, a reason to be connected to this chronology, N not just it's there. It's very different from, okay, to take a completely, a sort of crazily hypothetical different scenario, as you, some of you have probably read this, and I'm sure you know all about it, the, um, you know, there's a, there's a, 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 a premise out there that if, there's intelligent life in the universe, it's almost certain that we're not the first or the most advanced. And you can follow various arguments that include the possibility that you know we're living in a simulated reality created by aliens that are just a lot smarter than we are. And they don't even have to be that much smarter, just because we're only a few we're only a few centuries from this capability, which is a you know nothing. It's a blink of the eye in cosmic time. So if you think so then you have an interesting, uh, a true question to ask yourself. If you thought you're living in a computer simulation of some superior, an entity that's so sophisticated you can't really understand them, does it change the way you view your life? Would you behave differently? Everyone should be able to ask themselves that question because I'm telling you right now, there's a finite probability that it's true and the case. So it's a completely sensible thing, just like, you know, you walk out in the street and there's a big gold ingot sitting there and there's no one around and you should always ask yourself, you know, would I take it if I could lift it up? Uh, and you may be confident in your answer. You should always ask yourself all these hypothetical questions. <laughs> but I think like, you know, some of the things about making us different from uh, uh, other, you know, animal species on the planet and stuff is just we get away from instinct in that we actually are, we have this curious aspect to ourselves and uh, you know, one of my friends who, uh, one time said, like, look, 
know, humans became humans when that they, they, they got over what are the three most basic things that are instinctual amongst animals. And one is that, uh, you know, looking around a group of other animals, you say, like, I eat that, I run from that, and I screw that. Yeah. So, like, once we became bigger than that, and we began to be, uh, you know, look at the world and try to explain why we did that, I mean, that was like the beginning. That was like the, the origin of humankind, maybe 300,000 years ago and stuff. But, I mean, it's, it, it, it's interesting to notice it's also, the, it's, of course, the source of all our troubles as well. Yeah. I mean, that particular story, if you look in, in the Republic, in Plato's Republic, he, he starts to first design an ideal city, and, and the idea is to say, well, what do we need? We need food, shelter, uh, uh, clothing. So let's figure out how many people it would take to make that in the most efficient way. Um, find out who's good at what, dole it out. We have a small group of people, and they don't have to work much because that's, and then they, they just um, sing a lot, and they, they sleep on, on rough ground, and uh, having a wonderful life. And the immediate response of, of Glaucon and Adamantus is, you know, if you were designing a city for pigs, what else would you give them? We need couches, we need sofas, we need luxuries, right? This is not a good city. And it seems to me, you know, Plato's point was exactly the same one, because you think, my dog, you feed him, you give him a nice place to sleep, he has no ambitions beyond that, right? He's not driven by mm -hmm. um, insatiable desires, insatiable ambitions. And Plato's point is then you see what happens because humans have these insatiable desires. Um, and mostly it's bad. But maybe one good one was a kind of insatiable curiosity as well, right? An insatiable sense of, of wanting a further story about things that maybe leads to, you know, at least led to science when properly harnessed. But it, it also seems to be the thing that you know, leads to all our troubles as well. Would you say, looking at the arc of life on Earth, or just the way that evolution works as you understand it, that it would, this would be a dysfunctional capacity? I mean, we've sort of, with technology, we sort of transcended some of the natural limitations we had thousands of years ago. But in general, this, this sort of insatiable thing, it could be seen as being as very dis... Uh, well, I mean, I think that, like, you know, even Matt, like, there's a lot of ways to look at the evolutionary process, and certainly, I mean, that there's been a lot of, you know, talk, both from, you know, people looking, doing experimental work, as well as mathematical simulation, about that evolution is all about escalation. So that, uh, uh, you know, where that escalation takes you might not always be a good place. Because, you know, that even that there's, you know, classic examples in our own bodies, like our knees, like if you're ever an engineer and you're going to design those, that they, they don't work. And that, uh, but it's just a combination of what we started with and then what, that when we became bipedal then that we ended up with, which isn't necessarily a good way to be. And that, you know, you can take it to the more macro level and say that, well, you know, that the evolution of ourselves, the evolution of other animals and things like that hasn't always for the health of the planet, if you could measure that in some empirical kind of way, isn't the best place. And that, uh, I mean, what evolution optimizes on is not always good. On the other hand, you might sort of discover mathematics and be so happy that you forgot to run away or run after <laughs> anything or screw anything. And then I guess then you die yeah, out well, too. <laughs> Thales was looking up at the sky and right. fell into a well. I mean, yeah, you know, the original absent-minded <laughs> <laughs> 
and there are, you know, the, the, I, it's hard to deny that that insatiability has led to some of our current problems, but there's this bizarre strand of, of futurist thought, you know, there it's the Kurzweil's of the world and others who really think that we have enough capacity to satisfy you know, then you know. Once you've got okay, I know this isn't true even in a city like this. But once you've got you know seven or eight cars, you can't really drive anymore. And once you've got seven holiday homes, you can't really get to anymore. So, you know, you can in a in a situation of uh, large capacity for wealth or creation of resources, um, where resources become essentially free, and there are some economic models that you know that you might just think they're just wildly optimistic and unrealistic, but they exist and they have as much validity going forward into an uncertain future as anything. Um, that say that we could get to this a happy yeah, place. That's that's not human psychology. No. I mean, we were just we, my wife was just reminding me there was a story on NPR about somebody. It was about collecting. They had different stories about collecting. There was one guy who, what he collected was copies of the Beatles' White Album. <laughs> the same, exactly the same. He had 500 copies, as many as he could get his hands on, right? Everyone exactly the same, all, I guess, in, in a shelf that was nothing but copies of the White Album. Now, you'd think one would be enough, or maybe two if you want to be careful. There's, you know, there, there's something you can get yourself in a frame of mind where, and he's not even competing. It's not like, you know, he's staying ahead of the guy who's got 499 and he has 500. Um, you know, there's something in the human mind, the human character that can. I think, uh, I think that Brezhnev had uh, maybe 100 cars and he was uh, collecting more. So, yeah, and, uh, so, so the, optimistic, <laughs> the optimistic read on this is that we also have the itch to create. And there's no limit to that. I mean, I know young people who come up and they want to do popular music and they just think, you know, every popular song that could be worth listening to has already been written, you know, surely. Uh, but, of course, it's not true. So in the creative arts, the potentials for future creation are nobody knows what the bounds are. So there's an unlimited potential future resource that doesn't really negatively impact anyone. I mean, eventually we'll just all walk around groaning, oh God, not more beautiful poetry. I don't have time for it, you know. I've already read 50 poems today. You know, I'm sated or whatever it is. So that's a part of our insatiability that I don't know has a downside. And, you know, we maybe can conduit that or maybe there's there are external shaping circumstances that could lead that to be obviously more valued than it is now, or uh, because that that's something where you just follow it. You can keep, keep going. There's no no reason to put a bound on it. Well, I don't know. I mean, the, the uh, capacities of every person are sort of limited. If it's an insatiable thing to do something and pushes all else out, you know, it may not work out so well. Um, but uh, a lot of it is also, you know, that, I mean, that we say that, yeah, you know, that every, all seven billion of us on the planet can have a, a much better life. Well, that's just us. I mean, that says nothing about the rest of the planet. I mean, definitely, I mean, we have the technology and the resources, especially moving forward to probably have quadruple the population of the planet. Uh, and, and that 
quadrupling of the population of the planet to have each individual person have a much better life. But that the other organisms of the planet and the other you know, things that you know, some people like hold dear, like you know, rainforests, things like that, that's not going to be part of the equation. I mean, that's going to be the sacrifice part of it and stuff. So that, uh, you know, that improving people's lives comes as a cost, and increasing population comes as a cost to other things. And I, I actually think we'll get to the point of being able to create new beginnings. You know, I have to say this because I'm an astro geek, but I think, you know, <laughs> despite the doldrums you see around you of the space program and, you know, 7% of the students I teach don't think we went to the moon, which drives me crazy, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe it's even 10%. I don't know. It's a significant number. But, um, and the shuttle is old and decrepit and this, nobody likes the space station. The whole thing is just kind of a mess. And, and you, then you look at the exponentiation of your electronic digital life and think, well, what's going on? Where's the connection here? Um, anyway, I think that's just a bump. I think we'll get through that. Um, and so I think in a hundred, maybe put a number on a hundred years, we'll have a new beginning which amounts to us going off Earth. And that will be an extraordinary thing. That will be a new story of us. Of, and it won't, and it'll stop being us. There'll be different people. They won't be us after a while. Um, but we'll be invested in it. And I won't get to live to see that, but I think it's going to happen. And so the beginnings can take turns that you didn't expect, I think. This is not, it's not just one story. I hope, I believe we may generate multiple stories. What do you think about that? What, going off the planet? And becoming, a, and changing, not just... Oh, of course. I mean, it'll, 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 it'll be like Wally. <laughs> 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 we'll look totally different. But, uh, yeah, I mean, mm. I mean, even within, and it's not just the crackpot element and stuff who says this and stuff, even that there are some pretty well-known biologists who really feel that even life itself may have come from someplace else on our own planet and stuff as far as that, uh, you know, and that looking at the, uh, the chemistry of some meteorites that have uh, amino acids in them and things like that. So I could mean that the basic building blocks might not have been things that were assembled on our own planet. I mean, I disagree with that, but I mean, that this is not, just like I said, it's not crackpot stuff. It's not outside the idea of rationality. But, but um, I, I mean, so I'm going to be a, a little bit of the contrarian here. I, um, I just don't see it as, uh, if it were to occur, I'm not, I'm not sure why it would be so significant. I mean, right now, as you say, we have people who live for long periods in a space station that's orbiting the Earth. It's kind of unusual. A hundred years ago, you would have thought amazing. We're kind of bored by that, right? What are they? They're, they're up there. We don't even know what they're doing. We don't pay attention to what they're doing. We don't think this is the beginning of a new humanity. If, if Newt had become president and we got a moon colony, my guess is we'd put a lot of money into it and some people would live up there. And every now and then we'd check in and say, how are things on the moon? They'd say, fine. <laughs> but we wouldn't think it was a new beginning for humanity or it... I mean, people are kind of odd about this. This idea you should, well, we should go to Mars because what if we ruin the Earth then we can terraform Mars. <laughs> and you think, we can do bad things to the Earth, but we can't do anything so bad it'll make it look like Mars, right? If we, <laughs> if we could make Mars habitable, we ought to be able to make the Earth habitable a heck of a lot more easily. Um, so I think, again, I think there's a kind of romanticism which you understand of this, of it being new and it being amazing. And, but, you know, 
of course, new things become quickly old, um, and the amazement rubs off kind of quickly. So I'm, I'm, if you ask me, would, even if we were to invest in interplanetary travel or something like that, would that be a new beginning to humanity? I, I can't see why. Can't quite see why it would be. I mean, we could, we could right now send people to live down at the bottom of the sea. It wouldn't be, I guess, that expensive. Be a very different kind of isolated hermetic life, and they would live differently, and they'd look out the windows and see things we don't see every day. We yeah, get I, bored. We'd get bored with a reality show after a while. I think it would, them, yeah, right? it would start <laughs> mundane. I mean, it is just a glorified reality show at the beginning. I mean, the space station, right? That's a good example because that's that's no further straight up than you could drive in an afternoon. So that's pathetic. That's not <laughs> that's not space. I mean, it's expensive, but it's not space. No, the way it would happen is in a hundred years, because it could. The technology is available. I mean, it will be people taking a one-way trip. There's a coin toss odds that there's an Earth-like planet on one of the Alpha, around one of the Alpha Centauri, a pair of stars that are sun-like. It's a real, and astronomers will know within a couple of years whether, and and so that would be amazing if in a universe that we think is littered with habitable planets, but the distances are large, we lucked into a habitable planet around the closest star. It really could happen. It's very interesting. And at that point, you would go. You know, someone would go. So, uh so what kind of probabilities do you assign to all this? The, the existence the, uh, of an Earth-like planet? No, not the existence, the finding, the conceivability of finding such a thing. Oh, it's, uh, it's good. I mean, it's, the techniques are available to find Mars mass or even lower mass at 10, 20, 30 light years. So if those planets exist, we'll know it. And then we'll no, be able how to... Oh, uh, you'll find... Planets that conceivably could have this kind of... So you, the, the detection of the planet and its mass and its orbit and whether it's in a habitable zone, that's techniques already in hand. Yes, but what's the other probabilities? Oh, it's actually... How it's, many of these planets are there? In, in the Milky Way, there are a hundred round numbers, a hundred million terrestrial habitable planets. And which what is proportion of them will be habitable? Oh, that's, we have no idea. So then it's a, that, that's a question right. for you. You have a hundred million Petri dishes. Right. How many of them do you think something interesting happened? Or anything and then right. something interesting? Right. I mean, again, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a very difficult question because it depends on, something's going to happen a lot of them. Something interesting might happen in a very smaller amount. But, but you know, going back to the habitable planet idea, you know, what about even like a, a uh, you know, building an atmosphere on Mars. So it's, it just turns out that NASA, you know, you can pull off the shelf. NASA have done that. And it's, it is, you're right, it's absolutely insanely difficult and expensive. To, to terraforming Mars is a three-stage process, and the minimum is about a 1,000 years and $100 trillion, minimum. And they've costed it. That's not just a ballpark number. That's an actual, actual NASA people do this It's always more stuff. expensive when they actually yeah. get done, you know. And so, right. Larry Allison could do it cheaper. <laughs> and, and the other thing you said is exactly right, that it, you know, we're always better off not soiling our own you know, place and making it better, and, or even finding parts of it we can live in, living in domes or under the sea or whatever. It's just so much easier than going to Mars. So, so yeah, we're not going to go off Earth in that limited way. I think it's more this more purely adventuristic thing where with a one-way ticket and an uncertain future, you take the minimum genetically viable population will be, you know, of order 100, I guess, 70, 80 individuals, and they will go 
to some Earth-like planet where you've diagnosed the atmosphere and you know that it's breathable, more or less. And they are, and within three generations, they will start to not be us. I mean, their 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 environment will be different enough if they survive. Of course, they may not survive. So. Um, but that, and yes, they'll be sending their information back, and it'll be this crazy reality show. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but but I, so it, it's not necessarily a new beginning of us. Of course, we would rather. I think most of us would rather have a new beginning here. You know, by resetting on some of the dysfunctional bad stuff. But that's very hard to do because how do you get everyone in a room to push the reset? Right. Button? I mean, that would be much more reasonable. As I say, we sort of invest our hopes in funny ways. I mean, even take the case, it always occurs to me, suppose in one of your habitable planets there's even already inhabited and there's a civilization and so on. And, you know, of course, our, our whole science fiction industry has been suggesting that it would be the great, it would be in a certain way this great thing to find this other intelligent civilization. Um, and of course, it would be fantastically interesting. But on the other hand, I mean, think about it from the other side. What do they find? They just find us, right? For them, the big thing is to come here and what? Look at I Love Lucy. I mean, you know, look at chairs like this. They say, wow, look, you made a chair. I mean, um, it's not clear that this other civilization would somehow be intrinsically be different, but whether it would be intrinsically higher or better or you know, lend significance to our life in a deep way. It's hard to see why because. Otherwise, we have the capacity to do that to them. We ought to do it to ourselves first, right? Let's give our own lives meaning and you know, do things nicely around here and show them something when they show up, right? <laughs> but, it, but it would be, the fascinating part of that was that this is, of course, making these crazy assumptions of roughly equivalent sentience, intelligence, and even communication, which are implausible. But they will have a story. They will have an origin story and it will be different. You know, regardless of the cultural differences on this planet, which have led us to slaughter each other in vast numbers, so they're not trivial, we still have the same story. I mean, it, it is in the end the same story. It's one story. To know that there were other stories in existence, that is, those sentient intelligent entities evolved and exist elsewhere, and then to actually learn one or more of those stories, that would be extraordinary. I mean, it would recontextualize our story at some level. It wouldn't negate it or trivialize it, but it would sure be a, an interesting thing to know about. What's the difference between philosophy and cosmology? None. Because we don't know, um, you know, cosmology, you know, I, I'm not going to even. I'm not going to brag about it at all. It, it, at some level, there's been some success, but the ultimate endeavor, you know, runs into a brutal wall of ignorance because we don't know what the two major ingredients of the universe are, dark matter and dark energy. Each of them represents new and unknown physics at some level. We have a, a story that, that vectors back to points backwards towards a, an initial state that we don't understand, we don't have a good theory of, and, and so, yeah, I mean, there's big question marks all over the place. So, you know, so the chronology from about a microsecond forward, yeah, we can, we can paint that nicely, but you're exactly right. You're driven, if you're doing your job properly, to not be satisfied with explaining everything that happened after a microsecond after the Big Bang. You want to know initial conditions, why it got that way, and 
no, all bets are off. That is truly natural philosophy at this point. Some very clever theories, some great ideas, and you know, but I'm a kind of gritty, you know, show me, let me point my telescope at something, you know, give me some evidence, and not yet, not now, so. And the same sorts of arguments go for the origin of life. I mean, like, you know, we have catalytic activity and even self-replicating activity and things that aren't life, but organizing all of that into something which actually, you know, really works as a, uh, <coughs> excuse me, as a biological machine is something which is unexplained. And that's a, that's a fascinating <coughs> part of, of what, of your, the origin of what you do, which is, it seems to me that the origin of life, you know, something we do care about, it's our story, it's the very beginning of our story, because it's historical science, we may never, know, we might not ever know the answer, right? Right, the exactly. True. I mean, I think we'll, we'll never know the real answer, but we might be able to model it and come up with a proxy for it that we say, well, this is the best simulation that we can do. But because it is historical, that we're, we're burdened by this historical contingency. We weren't there. Are you ready to take questions? Oh, sure. Sure. I would, I would just add Go ahead. Yeah. I, I think given that we're in a house of psychoanalysis that we would be remiss if we didn't reference something about the developmental aspects of curiosity. Um, and, you know, uh, Jacob Arlo in 1982 wrote uh, a, a very interesting paper on, on scientific cosmogony, mythology, and... Your, your mic is on. Yeah. Oh. Thank you. Um, Jacob Arlo uh, wrote uh, an interesting paper in 1982 uh, called Scientific Cosmogony, Mythology and Immortality. And he basically uh, saw the consilience between our theories about uh, the origins of the universe, mythology, and um, the unconscious fantasies derived from uh, early childhood wishes and beliefs regarding procreation. Uh, you don't have to go further than um, Courbet's uh, The Origin of the World uh, to, uh, uh, to gain understandings about unconscious processes related to how a child asks questions about, the first, really the first ep epistemological question is, where did I come from? Where do babies come from? And uh, I think it's an interesting perspective to think about how we frame questions as adults about beginnings and what connections that has to earliest uh, mental life in solving the problem of where one originates as a child. Because a child is confronting a very bewildering world filled with intense motivations. And uh, in relation to your idea about, you know, people becoming something other than human, I think as long as we are raised in small cohorts where we're mapping our motivations on the relationships with parents, there's, their beginnings will never be new in a certain sense because we'll always be starting off with the same kinds of questions. Anyway. I mean, that makes me wonder how these questions will change and the stories, the, the answers given when we start cloning, when we start, you know, genetically modifying humans, not creating ad, ad, ad initio, obviously, but, 
you know, that those will be different stories. That yes. the uniqueness, the issue of uniqueness, the the origin, the motivation of the origin, the story. Um, I don't think we're ready to answer questions like that, even as we prepare the technologies to do it. Is there? I mean, this is. I I know nothing about child development that's relevant. But I'm just curious, when you say a, a, the, the world for a child is bewildering, um, I, I'm just wondering what reason to think it is bewildering to them. I mean, they, 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 it seems, from what I understand, children come with certain expectations, basic physics expectations, so that things can violate those expectations and they get startle responses or whatever from, you know, from essentially time zero. Um, bewilderment really does suggest a kind of very sophisticated desire for an explanation. Um, and I, I just wonder why, why think that kids, I mean, I understand after a while they may come to ask certain questions, but when you say the world is bewildering to them rather than say actually quite familiar, I mean, you know, we, we've all seen the little kid who's, who's trying to get the, the Time magazine uh, cover to, to change by, you know, because they're so used to iPads. Why? Well, they grew up with iPads, you know. They weren't bewildered. They're bewildered why it doesn't change now, right? So, I mean, the, the, it just doesn't meet their expectations, right? They form certain expectations in a very rote kind of way. So, um, when, when, you, when you have this description of the life I mean, I always, it, it, it's always curious to me, you, you, you know, one, one thought is, yes, it's a world of bright, vibrant colors and confusion and so on, or, or, or for all I know, it might be a world that actually looks rather dull and, you know, every day. <laughs> I don't know. How do you tell? I mean, how do you think well, you can well, get yourself into the well, I think psychological I'm, state of a well, child? Well, what, what I'm referring to is the disparity between the experience of reality and the child's and the domination of fantasy in early mental life mm -hmm. and the difficulty that the child has in sorting out the two so that those early questions right are are at you know very much at the heart of that disparity shall we open it for questions go ahead there's the you have to walk to the oh. microphone there feel <laughs> um, uh, so we, um, it was pointed out that um, uh, every traditional society has a creation myth, and we live in a sort of amythical scientific worldview where we don't allow the scientific story of creation to fulfill a myth, mythic role in our society. So, my my uh, the, the question would be, um, or if, if it is a myth, it's an anti-myth. It's it's a myth of meaninglessness and purposelessness, kind of stoic existentialist story, which works for me some days of the week, but not every day of the week. But so, um, so, uh, uh, so there's something um, 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 antithetical about the way that we um, are trying to incorporate the new scientific origin story, which um, has the benefit of being progressively true, truer, and, um, and um, practical in all kinds of ways, but something antithetical to uh, something about human nature and human societies uh, which uh, needs uh, some framework of meaning and purpose in order to uh, function uh, coherently. So uh, how do we, uh, how, how might we address that question? I mean, I, I, since I was sort of 
then I mean, I'm going to repeat myself a, a, a little bit here, but because it was one of the things I kept coming back to. I just think there's a, a kind of error in thinking that the origin story even could play this sort of role. P people, um, so that the scientific, I don't think the scientific story should bother you at all. Um, people have a tendency to have these thoughts that seem to render their lives meaningless. Like you say, oh, a thousand years from now, who will know what conversation went on in this room or you know, how well I did in this or that. Nobody will remember. So what's the point? And I sort of never got it, right? Why should I care what they know about a thousand years from now, right? If, if, if my child falls down and, and skins her knee and I'm going to comfort her, I don't, what, what's the point of thinking a thousand years from now, no one will never know I comforted my child, right? Well, I'm not doing it for them a thousand years ago. I'm doing it for her right now. Um, and why is it significant? Because she's hurt. <laughs> I'm making her better, right? Um, you know, her life is better because I'm doing this. I mean, these sorts of, and it's a very trivial kind of thing, but it seems to me um, if, you, if you're expecting something from a kind of cosmic story that it couldn't give you no matter how it came out, then of course you're going to be disappointed. But I think it was always the wrong place to look, and that's why I don't think the scientific, you know, replacing it with a scientific story should have really any effect at all. Tim, you're answering as a philosopher, not as a sociologist or a psychologist, or, or I'm, how do, I'm, I'm, I'm not a I'm So if you're asking me, how do you get people to realize that? Yes. We care a lot about yes. it. Yes. And we see that all around the world. Yes. And we see in the in, in anti-intellectual religious yes. uh, movements that continue to have a uh, feed uh, in spite of the facts. Yes. So, I mean, right. no, all so, around you there's evidence that people care a lot. Right. So, I, I absolutely... So, uh, so the first part was to say, if you if you sort of think it through deeply, it's a misplaced, you know, emphasis. Now you're asking me, how do you get people to replace their irrational thoughts with rational thoughts? And if I could answer that, I'd be very happy. I'm, I mean, unfortunately, I have nothing to say. There are much more trivial things like climate change and so on, where. You say, well, all the rational evidence goes one direction. How, why is it we can't just convince people in everyday life that this is a real problem um, against, because there are people whose you know, personal interests are such that they don't want you to realize it's a problem. I, I, have no, I have nothing on that wonderfully important question of any use to say. Um, so yeah, my job is trying to, trying to figure out how things are, but then, but then, but then changing things how they should be is, you know, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> well, my, my question is similar. It's um, one of the original question you asked is why do we care about this? And we care about it because, of, you know, the, un, the elephant in the room is God. You know, like, if the universe is eternal, we don't need a creator. And if suddenly we find that it isn't, um, it was created, then where did it come from? So you have Lawrence Krauss who talks about a universe from nothing. And then you have people who say, okay, well, there's all intelligent design and so forth, and there was a purpose. And I think to a certain extent, what everybody is asking, if there is no purpose, then of course there's no life after death. There's none of the other perks that come along with somebody looking over your, for you. And I think, you know, not the 
you know, this is anything new, but it's just, I think that was the elephant in the room. Well, but the elephant has been sticking its trunk in. I mean, Chris mentioned before, what if we're all in a simulation? And so our, as it were, accurate creation story is some extraterrestrial civilization created very powerful computers and gave to their fifth graders, you know, a, a take-home project, yeah. create a simulated world. Um, and we happen to live in it, right? right? It's my preferred deistic right. interpretation. <laughs> um, the, the question he asked, which I think is perfectly accurate, is, okay, that, interesting. Um, so what, right? Get up tomorrow morning. You still got to make breakfast. <laughs> you know, um, all of that, and, and I think even if it's God, I mean, this was sort of the point I was saying about the children, even if it's God, none of that Will, will, will give us, we can't derive significance from that. Right. No, but the yeah. people who ascribe to religious dictates tell you that God has a purpose and this is what you must do. For, but you know, so they, it, why must I do it? I mean, it may well, be your, your afterlife thinks because he's going to beat me up forever if I don't. But that's a kind of my, thin way to but live my life. But we have people blowing, you know, <laughs> flying into buildings and doing all sorts of terrible things yes. because of these beliefs. So Absolutely. Uh, also, yeah. also, regarding cosmic the cosmic story told by science I don't really think there's any you know I, I don't it's not a Stephen Jay Gould non-overlapping magisteria I, I mean because people individuals you know mash these things up amazingly I have I give uh, science literacy type surveys to my students 18 year olds at a big state university and they show a fantastic ability to hold you know, a reasonable comprehension of the major tenets of modern science alongside superstitions, religious faith, all, all sorts of things. Everyone's a mashup. It's a marble rye. So, but as far as the cosmology goes, whether it's a, you know, a Big Bang, that's all we can say, or some eternal, some multiverse, like, you know, endless timeline, eternal past, eternal future, that, that really does, to me, it has no connection or implication to, to, to the landscape it has no projection into the belief system, particularly. It's not required. I think also, like, you know, I mean, I think that you know, as a scientist, one of the things that I try to point out is that, you know, that, you know, calling it the scientific creation story is not really what it should be called because it's not really a story. I mean, there's a big difference between thinking and believing. And that, uh, you know, that as somebody who, you know, works and things, you have to be every day prepared that you're going to go into your office one morning, you're going to turn your computer on, and somebody is going to have written something which is going to cause you to say, everything that I've ever done in my entire career is bullshit. And I've just got to like get on with it and think within this new paradigm. And that's not the way the belief systems work. I mean, because belief systems continue to reinterpret all new data within the construct of those belief systems instead of abandoning totally what they've, they've had before. And like, I mean, you guys at that experiment would have really been right uh, in, 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 uh, in Europe a few months ago when they had particles going faster than the speed of light. Right. If that would have been true, that would have been a big problem for a lot of modern physics and right. modern astronomy. But of course, that's, that's when it's fun. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Most of us wanted that to be right. Right, 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 right. So it's every apple card. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So. Uh, but, the, but the GPS, this is not my question, yeah. but, but the uh, blaming it on an, um, a miscalibrated GPS has, has been refuted, so it's still an open question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, no, it's been resolved. Has it? Finally. Yeah, yeah. They, they, uh, 
actually something was plugged in, not completely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it wasn't the GPS. They were receiving the time signals and it goes into a calibrator and literally the connection wasn't quite made properly and it, it, it introduced a 60 nanosecond delay and that was it. They it's, fixed it. It's, it's all amazing done. Everybody's how it works. Done you know, you're overthrowing the laws of physics based on a you know, connector not quite in. Just, just as it's, it's one line of the alien's code going wrong that makes us this warlike tribal civilization. That's all. Just one little line of code. Oh, so here, here's the thing. So I'm going to do something that's going to sound a little simplistic, but I'm going to um, br bring this back uh, to a neurobiological interpretation. So uh, one thing that hasn't been addressed directly is that we are here talking about what we're talking about uh, in a structure that started as an idea because of our complex encephalization. Specifically, I want to talk about the frontal cortex where the planning, the ability to plan, to foresee a future, to imagine a future, um, largely occurs. Now, that said, uh, and referring back to Damasio, self come to mind. It, it, in the case that the emergent self-awareness that every human being individually goes through, that we went through as a species, uh, one, <laughs> I would imagine, a great source of anxiety uh, that gives rise to religions and their stories is the fact that we are aware of our own mortality. So I wanted to ask uh, how many of you who would care to respond to the, to the question that once we have a, a robust functional and structural connectome and we really uh, advance technologies such as optogenetics and the next generation of fMRI that goes beyond statistical analysis, uh, there are some already in, in play, as you may know. Uh, once we understand the language of the brain, do you think that will answer the question why we care from the, from the frontal cortex? That's the question. I mean, that's way outside my field. My, I, as I understand the research, though, that, that, that if, that hypothetical, is a, is a huge one. Because, oh, yeah. you know, that, that area of research, I mean, if you think understanding the in the singular singularity and the initial conditions of the Big Bang is a challenge, then, you know, go work on the mind-brain problem for a decade or two decades or a whole right, career. Right. So I, I am not familiar enough with the current state of the research, but I think that's, it's plausible. It's just so far off, we can't even see that, that horizon yet. But even if we could take it one step further and say that we could do, at some point in our life, a total download of our entire brain. Uh, right, substrate independent minds. Exactly. And we would have all of our memories, we would have, you know, everything. That I'm not sure that once it's divorced from your own body and stuff, that we would have... The, and would yet that insane. would be exactly what would be required for us to be in a simulation. Yeah. But, wait, wait, I'm not sure. Now I'm missing... I thought that I'm, maybe the question has changed, so let me just understand the question. I understood the question to be... Would advances in neuroimaging, say, take them all the way down to you, can, right. you know what every synapse is doing over some period of time? Uh, would that give us insight into why we're so scared to die? Now the question is, if if I could create if a didn't die, if, if if I could create a replica of myself somehow, functional replica, would I no longer be afraid of dying? I and mean, wh which question are we talking about? They're both they're both implied by understanding the uh, at a profound okay, so, level the activity so, so, and structure of the frontal cortex. So let me encephalization. At let me answer both of them then. I I don't think um, knowing the neural structure down to the finest details you like is going to give you much insight at all. Well, that's why I added functional connectome yeah. to structural. 
into, into the origin of our anxieties. I mean, it's just a different level of analysis you need, and a level of analysis that, that should apply fairly independently of hardware you know, implementation. Well, why, why is that, though? Because uh, if anxieties are emotionally driven and emotions arise out of the older portions of the brain, like the reticular activating formation, the limbic system, and the right. rest of it, and those uh, interact with the mid and higher level functions of the more encephalized portions of the brain, right. why not be able to answer it in that capacity? Well, the, because the, the, the type of, of functional description of what's going on just isn't going to be tied that closely to neuroanatomy would be my guess. Well, again, again, I'm not saying only anatomy. I'm talking about function as well, but it's well, okay. Okay. time to go. Uh, this gentleman then. Uh, how would the discovery and habitation of another planet differ from the discovery and habitation of a new world by the Europeans? Um, so that's a good question. It would be substantively different just because of course, as the original denizens of all these parts of the world noted, you know, they were there first. So there, there, there weren't that many truly Antarctica apart. There, you know, humans, the, the, pattern, the patterns of human migration 60 to 30,000 years ago are extraordinary. So there were very few places that were untouched. And then it's, it's, it's us. And it's us in a home that we've evolved over tens of thousands of generations and adapted to the full physical range. If we uh, visited and even colonized a habitable world that could tolerate us and we could tolerate it, um, the, you know, the branching of evolution would happen and be sculpted very quickly. And it would be a, it would be a new thing fairly quickly, I think. So that's, that's the sense in which it would be different. Also, because of the time and space disconnect, that that would be, you know, it, it would be a new start because you'd have a generational uh, light time, light travel time or, you know, artifact travel time between civilization one and civilization two. It would be something different. So it would feel very different. And, the, and presumably civilization one prime would not feel beholden or bound by whatever had happened before. They would feel like a new, it a new start as well. Well, like, what, any thoughts about the perspective of the human beings at the time of discovery, discovery of the world in terms of that, how they perceived those discoveries and where they might lead as opposed to us learning the yeah, so I'm not a historian. I would not answer that question because I'm not really a historian. I can't comment. Okay. Uh, I, let me just uh, suggest that uh, the mind, particularly the unconscious mind, is a developmental organ. The, the mind, the unconscious mind particularly, is a developmental organ that... <clears throat> Being developmental, it, we have beginnings and we have, and we develop. The essence of our being may, in fact, be our development. The sort of meaning of life, so to speak, may be to develop. Um, that um, try to uh, follow these assumptions with me. That that mind, this developmental mind may 
in fact have been a, an aspect of matter that more recently evolved. So that you could have primitive matter, you could have Big Bang matter, and then you could have something that happened that evolved mind. That mind is another matter wave, if all matters are waves, if all if energy is a wave and substance is a wave and time is a wave and so on. That mind is another, uh, is another waveform that has evolved. So the question I guess I have is, would this be a subject of interest to cosmologists? And how did this new matter wave evolve? And was it in fact the evolution of mind as a new matter wave that evolved life? Did the evolution of mind precede the evolution of life. That is, <clears throat> can we imagine any, any form of life that doesn't require at least a little smidgen of mind to survive? Um, in other words, do we have a current force problem? But the question to you all, I think, is, is, is that, would that be of interest to cosmologists, is that what steps were necessary to form mind? I mean, I'd actually like to hear a philosophy perspective on this, but from the, from just from the my perspective of my field, really, we don't have a toolkit with which to answer that question. All we can say is that in terms of the, you know, the ingredients and the raw materials for biological experimentation, you know, the, the, you've got time and space in abundance because you've, as I think I alluded to, you could have an Earth clone with eight billion year head start on this planet. So you've got a lot of time to work with and you've got 10 to the 22 round numbers habitable worlds. So that's a lot of petri dishes. And you know, and we know what happened here. We also know that of the hundreds of millions of species, you know, only one of them sits in rooms like this and has conversations like this. And so- even, And even if we had like a like a, an exact twin world that's had the same starting conditions right. over the like you know 3.8 billion years of life and stuff, it would have come out totally different. Right. Yeah, and that's a famous debate. You know, Stephen Jay Gould wrote that. You know, 100 Earths lit by 100 suns come back in 4 billion years after life starts, and what what odds would you place on you know animals at all, primates, Homo sapien-like entities, and of course, the people in the field don't agree on that. There's no way you can resolve that contingency question. So I, I don't actually have an answer, real answer to your question. I don't know if you well, have. Well, I, I mean, I think there are two questions um, um, bound up, one of which is, is, is just really, really, really hard, one of which is technically hard, but we see the way through it, and neither of which is exactly the one you asked. So let me separate them. Um, if you start with matter, you can ask yourself, how do we get consciousness? When you're, because you're just saying mind, right? How do we get awareness? Um, that is, I think, the hardest question there is, and that nobody has a clue pretty much how to even approach it. Given that, we nonetheless do seem to know that states of consciousness are in very particular and precise ways dependent upon states of matter, right? That is, you can get a tumor in a certain place in your, in your brain and lose very specific cognitive capacities, right? Absolutely specific cognitive capacities. So it's not 
as if there's a mind somewhere else that's unrelated to what's going on in your brain. So I think the, the, the origin or the evolution of consciousness is just intractable because we have no idea really how to connect the presence of consciousness with material structure in a comprehensible way. There's another question, which is the evolution of what we would think of as intelligent behavior that we find among animals and living things and so on. Um, there, I take it, um, there's a pretty straightforward evolutionary story about why certain configurations, when they become reactive to their environment, are better computers. I mean, at least once we have some you know, microbes competing, um, there's a reasonable story to be told about the evolution of more and more sophisticated behavior. And when you said, can there be life without mind, I take it amoebas don't have mind. I don't know why we would have to think amoebas have anything like minds, and they do enough to start an evolutionary process off, right? They, they, re they replicate, they can vary, they reproduce. You get that, and you, you, you've started the evolutionary story. Or certainly, in some sense, you might say viruses are kind of alive, and there's not much room for a mind in a virus. So I don't think that we need mind before life. But how you get consciousness out of any process, I think, is but you know, something it's we don't an, it, We're talking about origins, and the origin yeah. of mind is a, is a wonderful question. And I you know, <laughs> like to think of it again in this sort of hypothetical cosmic realm where we have diagnosed, through work of my colleague here and others, the story, good chunks of the story of what led to us. But we've also seen some interesting potentials and possibilities that might play out elsewhere differently. So, for instance, if I were asking a hypothetical question about the evolution forward of life on Earth, I would say, if we weren't here, you know, kingpins and sort of sculpting the planet to our will, I would be very interested to see what social insects would turn into in a few hundred million years. Or I would be very interested to see, you know, bacteria use quorum sensing, and if you add up the bandwidth of their chemical communication, it exceeds that of a conversation we're having now. So it's not trivial. And they work in commensual ways in cooperative colonies, and no one's pretending there's intelligence there or consciousness or mine. I'd just like to see how that plays out in hundreds of different circumstances or with evolution given the vast you know, folding times available to it with time. So I, I would not rule out the in, inception of something we call mind from quite different architectures, biological architectures to the ones that led to us and quite different lineages and paths. paths. We can't do that. We can't do the experiment except conceptually. Well, we could do it in the past, though, because social insects had 150 million heads start yeah. on us. That's <laughs> that, right. I mean, I, I mean I, one, do, one does have the sense, again, there's a, always a kind of sense that evolution, the evolutionary process must be aimed at something like us. <laughs> and so if we weren't around, you know, the, 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 the insects would evolve somehow higher intelligence, what we think of as higher intelligence. But we know that's not right. I mean, the dinosaurs had plenty of time. Um, the insects, as you say, have had plenty of time. The fact is, what we know for sure, because out of all the billions of species there's ever been, only one developed the kind of intelligence it's not evolutionarily very useful. It can't be. If it was like eyes, right, like sensors, it would have evolved millions of times. The, the, the interesting question isn't what would have, my guess is if we weren't around and you left, let it go, nothing would evolve with our kind of technological intelligence. The question is why us? 
Now, you know, one, I, I don't know, I know I, there's an interesting book about the hand that said it's because we got hands, right? I mean, the fact is, if you're a hyper-intelligent tree, good for you, it's not going to help you, right? You can't do anything with it. Um, even if you're a hyper-intelligent dog, you, there are better ways to use your resources, you know? You've you got hands, there's lots you can do with your intelligence, or maybe voice, or maybe language, I mean, you know, there are all these different questions of what was the driver that suddenly made it important useful enough for human beings to grow really big brains so that it actually became hard to give birth to them, right? <laughs> because, their, because their crania got so big. Um, and it's certainly not because there is a general purpose evolutionary advantage to that kind of intelligence. Because if, it were, if it were, that were the answer, we'd see a lot more of it. Okay. One last question. Yeah, well, I, I was a lot of questions already been asked. I was on, on that track. I was interested in the creativity of the brain. I was also thinking of Emily Dickinson speaking about the brain larger than the ocean, and also of life beyond need. I mean, even in the animal kingdom, uh, thinking of crows or ravens, they build structures to appeal to the mate. There is a creative force that exists in the universe that's beyond immediate needs of food, shelter, and, so, and, that, and that is even more expanded in the human being. So it, one has to even go into the whole realm of creativity, the desire to go beyond the known, to hit against the boundaries. So it's not only the boundaries of the universe, it's the boundaries within the self that wants to go exceed itself and exceed its limits. So I think that's a very important area of creativity. Thank you. Okay.